Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode uh, on the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that's dedicated to help believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we're going to be doing that again through another sermon review. If you watch this channel regularly, you know that last week our sermon review was a bit different. We did one on the panel at VU 2022. So it wasn't really a sermon. It was more of a panel review. And a lot of you reached out after that saying, hey, you should watch some of those individual sermons from the the conference. One of those that you guys suggested was the Judas Smith one. So I thought, hey, I had some time. Why not? Let's go ahead and watch it. Now, typically, I wouldn't have made a whole sermon review out of this sermon, but there's a lot in this sermon that is um, concerning on a couple of different levels. And I'll talk about that as we get into it. One of those levels is I'm I'm genuinely concerned for Judas Smith as far as just his health as a pastor and how he views it. We'll kind of get into that. Now, this whole sermon is 50 minutes long. So to not make this sermon review very long, I'm going to try not to break in uh, very often because, again, I want to make sure we try to get through the whole thing. Um, we're going to make a solid attempt to do that. So let's go ahead over to the reaction screen here. And uh, if you like this comment con kind of content, make sure you like it. Make sure, make sure you subscribe, hit the notification bell. All of those things are going to help uh, stay up to date as well as get these sort of videos out to other people as well. There's also in the description below a podcast link, a link to help us out to support us if you want to do that as well. Most importantly, a link for this entire sermon without my review or without my commentary on it. You can just watch the straight sermon. That'll be in the comment section as well. Last thing I want to mention before we get into this sermon review is that if you want our free downloadable sermon guide to help you kind of work through sermons, that will be in the comment section below as well. It, it, it has places for uh, who is preaching, what their scriptures were, all of that. Uh, and it's very helpful to use in regards to kind of keeping your thoughts straight as you watch sermons such as this one, right? Um, so let's go ahead and hop into this. This is Judas Smith at VU Conference. This is apparently the last session uh, that he he did there. It was open to the public as well, to my understanding. But let's hop in. I don't want to take too long because, again, it is a 50-minute sermon, uh, and I want to get through as much as I can. But there's some things in here that I think are a little concerning uh, on multiple different levels, and I'm going to try to touch on them as we come across them. The title of my message um, tonight is On the Fringe, On the Fringe, and, and I wasn't going to organize it like this, um, but I'm going to organize it like this. I, I want to talk to people who have ever felt like you're on the outside looking in. I want to talk to anybody in this room who's willing to admit you feel sometimes like you're on the outer edge of the sacred community. You're on the fringe of the faithful called anointed people. You don't fit Sometimes you don't belong. You don't feel godly enough. You don't feel knowledgeable enough. You don't feel spiritual enough. Nobody knows that you listen to Pitbull more than worship music. You know, nobody knows that you cuss when you're not at church. And you have started to wonder, am, am I really fit to be blessed and, and, and used and and called by God. Because that's got to be a little bit of a pervasive thought tonight, doesn't it? After all of this, you got to start to wonder before you go home, how will God use me? And you know what's amazing, Rich, is how young VU Conference still is. And it's a holy thing. 
So there's a few things here that he's opening with. My understanding, and I'm not sure of this, but my understanding from looking at some of the comments in this video and with uh, him having a tissue uh, is that I guess the first part of this got cut off. I guess there was a point in which he like was crying about something, um, got really emotional about, I think just the whole conference and about, you know, his friends that are pastors, things like that. I'm not sure. That's sort of how it reads. He makes a slight reference to it, uh, later on in the sermon. Um, so something happened that we're just not privy to unless you were at the conference. But that being said, he intros his sermon here with saying, Hey, this is specifically for those that feel like they're on the outside of Christ or on the fringe of Christianity. And then he names some things like, Hey, I listen to more quote unquote secular music than I do Christian worship music. I cuss when I'm not at church. Um, there, there's just certain things that he names that make people feel maybe less holy. Maybe they don't have a whole bunch of knowledge about stuff. So it's interesting to intro that we'll kind of dissect that as we go along, but this is his stated purpose as he begins the sermon. It is, this sermon is for those that feel like they're on the fringe. Like, so they know that they're a Christian, but some of their actions make them wonder, like, you know, I don't fit in with everyone else because I do this, that, and the other thing. Now he doesn't name sexual sin, but I think that would fit in there as well, even though he doesn't name it. Those that maybe live with their boyfriend, girlfriend, have sexual relations outside of marriage. He doesn't name that, but just statistically, that's a pretty high percentage of people, even though he doesn't name them. So I, I, I'm just thinking of that, even though he doesn't name them, but that's the idea that he's saying, Hey, I'm on the outside edge of Christianity here. And he's saying, this is specifically for those people. So let's see how he approaches this. And I know, I know we're not as young as we used to be, but, uh, my friends here, Carmen, Carmen, how old are you? You're 15. You're beautiful, Carmen, 15 years young. Think of all the things God has for Carmen. Have you ever wondered, though, if you're good enough? I have. <laughs> you know what's wild is um, you get good and you do some good stuff, and then you start to wonder, will I still do more good stuff? I walk on this stage tonight, and I know I'm a good preacher. Don't get me wrong. I do. I look forward to what I'm about to say. I really, I'm being honest with you now. I'm going to be honest with you. But I wonder, will I be as good as I've been? Because what you don't know is what I know. And that is before I came on the stage, I was like, God, you're the magic. You're the difference maker. Without you, I'm a kid from Portland, Oregon, who's hip hop to the core, just to be clear, to the core. But, but I'm just as average as you can possibly imagine. God just keeps helping me. And I grew up thinking that he did that because I didn't have sex. Until I got married. Now I'm married. Y'all got no idea what guilt-free sex is like. It's amazing. <laughs> What's that Jack Harlow song? Sex in the... I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. 
So I love, I love being married, but I, I used to think because I pray a lot, because I go to a bunch of church services, that's how God was going to use me. I love being married. Um, there's this game we play. We've been playing this game for 22 22- so real quick, it's important and you shouldn't overlook it, is that one, what you're going to notice, he's kind of all over the place, definitely with inflection. Now, this may be because he's too, like what he, he says, he says, I'm a good, I'm a good pastor. I'm a good preacher. Uh, he's a good speaker. I'll give him that. And good speakers know how to keep their audience engaged. Some of that is with inflection, which he does a ton of in this sermon. But it can't be ignored that he starts off by saying, I want to talk to the people on the fringes that feel like they're sort of on the outside or on the very edge of Christianity. And then he immediately pivots to, I've always wondered if I'm good enough, right? So now we've already sort of at least set up the idea then by whose goodness are we considered good? Like, is it my good deeds that make me good before God or is it Jesus's righteousness, right? And there seems to be that struggle there. And then he pivots to that he's older and he's done a lot of good things, like accomplish. he's had a lot of accomplishments, he says. And then now the itching question in his brain is, am I going to keep doing that? Or essentially, he doesn't say this, but this is essentially what he's saying. Have I peaked? If I've peaked, then what's, what am I supposed to do? And you're going to see throughout this sermon, this is, uh, if you want to call it a sermon, this is the interesting thing that I, I mean, there's some textual things that we are definitely going to get to that we get to in every sermon review that we do. But there's this underlying thing here, and this is where I'm concerned for Judah, is that he seems to be, like his whole identity seems to be in his ability to be who people expect him to be. And this is where like mega church culture, past, you know, star pastor culture, like celebrity path, like this is where like the, all the negatives of, of that you're going to see because he wonders if, is he, has he peaked? Is he going to be as good as he once was? Uh, is he going to keep being able to draw people? And then he also apparently seems to have this internal struggle of because I like he seems to find himself on the fringe because of probably the things that he says and the music he listens to and the fact that, um, you know, he's done all the right things, but, uh, does that, is that good enough essentially is what he's saying so far. Now this could be a really good intro into some amazing scripture and an amazing sermon about how it's not you, but Jesus right? It's not your righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. All those itching questions in your head about, am I good enough? You know, where is my identity found? All could be answered in a, in a, a very well put together sermon on about my identity and righteousness being found in Christ. We'll see if that's where he goes with it, but this could be a really good intro into that type of sermon. But let's keep going. I wanted to draw your attention to that because these are the questions that he's not saying, do you perceive that this way? He's identifying very tightly with this is how I perceive myself. So let's see where he goes with that. Two years. I've been married 22 years. You could clap if you want to. Come on, Pitbull, clap. My man, my man. Um. Rich, you know what I'm talking about? The game, uh, would you marry, would you still have married me if? You ever played that game? You ever played that game? Like, I'll, will it be at dinner and I'll chew with my mouth open and I'll be like, would you still marry me if I 
eight like this? It's a test. It's a test, right? Would you still marry me if I wasn't into deodorant? You know, stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? Like, would you still marry me if? Now, my favorite thing to do with this game, we'll be walking anywhere. We just got back from a little vacation together, and I swear I did it on, well, I can't swear, I'm a man of God. But I promise you that I do it every time. It's my favorite one. This is my favorite one. And it's always the walk. Because ladies, let me let you in on a little secret. It ain't the clothes that the man wears. It ain't even the deodorant. I mean, a little bit. It's how the man wears them. It's the walk. It's just what it is. It's just what it is, right? But what I like to do with Chelsea. What I, what I do want to point out that this, even though it seems completely pointless, and 99.9% .9 of it is completely pointless filler, he is getting to a point about the walk. So just keep that in your mind. Is I'll be like, I'll be like, would you still marry me if I walked like this? And you know what she says? Absolutely not. And I'm like, I know that's right. Right? Then this is my favorite one. I do this all the time. I've been doing this for 22 years. Would you marry me if I walked like this? Bye-bye. 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 She says, absolutely not. She says, I'm trying too hard. But it's all in the walk, isn't it? I know this isn't right, but at, at the end, when Pastor Mike Todd was walking off because he was over here and all, all the musicians were around him, and then I knew he was leaving, he was sneaking out, and I was like, watch this man walk. You should watch Pastor Mike walk. Cool as a butterfly, and there's 750 species. You know, like, <laughs> thanks, Pastor Rich. <laughs> all right, so. I'm gonna try to do Pastor Mike's walk. No, he started doing, he's like this. He was like, my man, my man, my man. Everybody's worshiping. I was like, look at that man of God walk, right? Man of God can't be like, after a sermon like that, he can't be like, he can't. Imagine Aiden and everybody, don't, everybody singing. Imagine he's like, that, 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 that don't fit. Walk like a man of God. You know what I mean? You don't walk like a math teacher. I'm kidding. If you're a math teacher, everybody relax. God can't be sarcastic for 30 So this is where, and I'll just make this really quick. Like, so there is a difference between uh, preaching, and I've said this before, but in case you're new here, there's a huge difference between uh, preaching and, uh, and just speaking. Right, so a speaker can hold attention in in a lot of the same ways as a comedian can. Right, so you're engaged because you're wondering what the next punchline is going to be. You're engaged because of the uh, inflection of voice and then body movement and like the energy there. Like there is all of that wrapped up within good uh, communication. Now, the difference between what I would consider like like TED Talk communication and like pastoral communication is. Um, when pastors are, are speaking, the authority that they're speaking with or the engagement that they're engaging with isn't in them. Again, this goes back to the identity thing, right? If, if I always capture you, if you're intrigued by my speaking because you're expecting a certain level of energy or a certain level of humor, I am not in myself going to always be able to produce that for you. 
I'm going to have days in which that's not there. If you follow the meme page, you know that there's some days where there's like, like I feel really funny. And then there's some days where I'm going to be super serious. Like I am not consistent in my energy output, but as a pastor, one of the things that when I'm preaching, whether I'm up or down that day, it doesn't really make a huge difference. It may a little bit in my inflection and how I present it, but the authority and the core of it is always going to come from the scripture. It's not how I'm feeling that day. It's what the scripture says. And whenever we, again, it's this, you know, you can take it for what it's worth. What he's doing here is for a comedic effect, right? It's, it's purposefully to engage you on a humorous level. It could be totally cut out and he could get to a bigger point. He actually spends more time leading up to uh, using this example to lead up to one point, then he could just say that one point, give us brief example, and then get into the scripture that he's going to talk about. Um, I, I just want to point that out. You can take it or leave it, but there is a difference in between comedic involvement and engagement versus what a pastor, how a pastor should engage uh, the people they're talking to, whether it be their congregation or anybody else, because it sets a tone, because now you expect this to keep up. Um, and that will inevitably affect how the pastor thinks people perceive them and how they have the level of energy and the level of wittiness and the, the amount of intelligence they feel like they always have to bring to something. It's not relying, they're relying on themselves, not, not on Christ. And we all have that struggle. You have to recognize it, but don't disconnect that from what he said at the beginning of the sermon, because it will affect the, what, what comes later. So let's get back to it seconds on this rock like bro that's not a transition that's not a transition <laughs> ladies you gotta check out the walk you know what I mean? not a lot of water polo players walk like this I tell you that right now <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't have a clue what that joke is. I'm totally lost. If you know, comment because I've listened to this a few times and I still have no clue what he's what the joke is. Rich, you 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 walk like a basketball player. I'll be honest. You don't walk like a polo player. Oh man. Oh. So this is what I'm gonna do. Here's how I used to think. I, that God only blessed and used people whose lives look like this kind of walk. This is how I imagine. I grew up just like you, just like Carmen and her sister. I grew up, you know, 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 0, real young in church. And I always felt like if you were going to be used by God, you had to walk anointed. And see, that says a lot about his upbringing. Do not underestimate the power that some denominational theology plays in a person's life, right? So I grew up Wesleyan Methodist, and I heard the term backslidden or backsliding all the time. So any little thing I did, I, I assumed I was backsliding. I just say that to make the connective point. 
Judah grew up in a more of a charismatic Pentecostal denomination. And so the word anointed or anointing was used a ton. That clearly influenced his perception on what your life should look like. And again, I'm not saying don't, don't like denominational theology is bad. I'm just saying that we need to do a good job of communicating to youth, to children, to young adults, to older people that have always been there. What is underneath that in regards to reliance on Christ and where some of these, uh, like the word anointed, actually work through it biblically? Backslidden. Even talk about if that's an accurate thing theologically within Scripture. Like walk people through the text in a way that you're teaching them. This is why always when we're looking at these sermons, it's important to be grounded in the text, anchored in the text. I don't care what witty thing anyone says, myself included. If it's not in the text, why are we talking about it? Anchor them in that. You have them for a very little amount of time. And they're going to take something away from it. But if it's a bad perception of what anointing is, it clearly affects somebody like Judah nearly 40 years later in his life. And we're going to see the outplaying of that through this whole sermon. So let's keep going. I don't know why you're clapping, but I like it. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I imagine preaching sermons like, I'm looking for people who understand the walk of faith. Who understand that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. Let don't, don't mess with me, man. I know preaching, okay? I know preaching. But that's what I thought, I thought, I thought you know. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. One thing he did say there that I think is important, and I know I'm breaking in a lot. I said I wouldn't. But one thing that's important to note here that he said a lot already is that he knows preaching. And he's demonstrated that he can walk right into a mimicking of preaching and walk right back out of it and transition without even skipping a beat. He's been in church long enough. He's been on stages long enough. He's been in front of people long enough that this is his identity and he knows how to do it without missing a beat. He could preach a whole sermon in that character that he just did, get applause like he just did, even though the audience didn't pick up on the sarcasm there at first. But he could do that, get a ton of praise, walk off, and people think that he was serious the whole time he was preaching. Like that's that's how good he is at it. So when he says he's good at preaching, he's not lying. He's good at uh, putting on the perception of preaching. He could do that the whole time. I'm not saying that he's faking the whole time. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that he has the capability to do it. And when you're in front of people long enough, when you've been at enough events, I'm not quite at that level at all. But I know I've been in church long enough that I know what people want to hear right? And I could get up and preach a sermon that people liked and just, you know, throw something together and people wouldn't even know the difference. When you do it long enough, like Judah has, you're able to switch in and out of that. And that's the point he's making. That's, I think, at the beginning of what he's alluding to. This is why I think there's two things going on here. We're going to look at this text and the sermon that he preaches, but there's this concern I have for Judah by looking at this sermon that says that he's not sure where his identity is. And that, that's a perception. Uh, th this is where it's a little bit different than the other sermon reviews I've done. Normally, we're looking at the scripture, the methodology they use. We're not looking at the person in particular. I always say that this isn't about if they're the best or the worst pastor. This still isn't about whether they're the best or the worst path pastor, but it is about the fact that Judah here seems to have all of his identity in it, and he's not sure that that's enough to hold him up. 
that's what I'm getting from it. Let's keep going. Amen. Amen. Bless you. I thought you had to walk like the Pope. I really did. So I practiced my prayer life. I practiced my Bible reading. I practiced my sanctification. I practiced my holiness. I kept telling young people, my dad started me preaching at eight and nine and 10 and did my first week of revivals at 16. And I was telling young people everywhere, well, anybody who would listen to me, I don't mean everywhere. That was a gross exaggeration. But the few 17 students in Alaska that I was ministering to, I would tell them like, you got to be set apart. You got to be holy. You got to be sanctified. You got to get rid of the sin in your life. God wants to refine you like he refines silver. He puts it in the cauldron in the heat of his holiness and his majesty. And the dross rises to the top. Oh, and the potter. Oh, and the silversmith. He smooths off the dross. And he's going to keep you on the fire until he sees your reflection and you look like Jesus. All right. Well. And though some of that might be true, it's not what I've learned in life. I overplayed it. I overcooked it. I overdid it. And I made it sound like an elite company of people who are all buttoned up and put together. And I, I, I was wrong. Now, don't underestimate what he's what's happening here. I don't think it's overdramatized. I don't think he's like I think that he, Judas Smith has has genuinely had a revelation of sorts that he does not at all believe as he used to believe in regards to what this looks like. Now, there's a lot of implications here. The implications he doesn't know. We'll talk about that at the end when we get to it. But I think it's important to note that that there's clearly a shift in his thinking. I was wrong. I, I was wrong. I, but I, so what I did is I tried and I tried and then I tried and then I like, it wasn't really working. Like there was a big delta between me, the preacher and me, the dude. And so what I did is I got on stage and I faked it, but I never made it. And so what I, I shudder to think that you might leave here thinking that in some way, in any way, shape, or form, we have insinuated, even in the smallest degree, that somehow God won't use you until you're perfect. Because nothing could quite possibly be further from the truth. And... Now, again, there's a lot of situations here where things are kind of teed up to where he could go into some things about sanctification. He could talk about uh, Peter, like people like Peter and Paul and the apostles, right, of where um, there's this continual growing to be more like Jesus in them uh, because there's a perception that Judas seems to be coming from that he's assuming the audience is picking up on which is this idea that, especially when you grow up in church, that there's this idea that there's a front you put on to be perfect when you're not really that perfect. And therefore, because there's this chasm, and he, he acknowledges the chasm in his own life. I think every Christian at some point has to acknowledge that there is this 
the way I actually am versus the way I, the presentation I put on. And depending on where you're at in your Christian walk or in that life, or if you've been in church forever, if you haven't, that's different for everybody, right? Most of the people that I know that are, that are my age, that are saved out of sin, there's not a chasm there because everybody clearly knows where they came from. But people like myself that grew up in church, there's a point, mine was in college, where I just was like, I had to come clean about all of the things that I was either doing, saying, addicted to, and be like, all right, this is the real me. And then come clean with that, repent, and then follow Christ uh, with people in a community around me that then knew me for me. And this is what he he's alluding to. I don't know if in a stadium that big that people are connecting those dots um, because who knows the background of people that are in there. So there is, there is a truth that sometimes the church kind of, depending on where you're at, what kind of church you go to, that you have to be perfect to be a Christian. Now, I'd say that's becoming less and less of a, a, a thing that's preached, but it, it is a thing that has been or is, you know, in small pockets, still a thing. And he's saying that you don't have to be perfect to be used by God, which is true. We have lots of examples to prove that. Samson, David, Peter, Abraham, like just pick a, pick a person and we can demonstrate that this is absolutely true book of Hebrews, you know, hall of fame, right? It all comes back to the faith that they had in the God that they served, even though they weren't perfect, their God is, our God is perfect. Um, so there's a lot of ways you could go with this to correct that thinking. Let's see if he does that. And I want to tell you about my friend I found in Luke chapter eight. I'll tell you about my friend in Luke chapter eight. Go to Luke chapter eight. We don't know her name. But we know she's been, she's been, she's been losing blood for more than a decade. She's not in the schedule. See, Luke chapter 8 opens up and says Jesus began a ministry tour. Dr. Tennyson knows this. Luke chapter 8 really is about the revelation of the dominion lordship of Jesus. That is why you'll see the number 12 three times in Luke chapter 8. The number 12 is the number for dominion or divine government. The government is, in fact, upon his shoulders. He is God all by himself. He doesn't need anybody else. He has no peer. He is the president of presidents. He is the king of the kings. He is the lord of all the lords. He is fully and actually, quite literally, completely and totally in control. So Luke chapter 8, don't get it twisted. Luke chapter 8, you're supposed to read it and go, wow, Jesus is God. So Luke chapter 8, if you're listening, watching, studying, and leaning in, you'll notice it starts like this. And so Jesus began a ministry tour and the 12 were with him. Jesus chose 12 disciples on purpose, not 13, 12, not 11, that's confusion. 12 is divine government. Jesus wanted you to know. So he's good. he mentions this a couple times, this, this whole idea of 12 being a number of, of power and whatnot. Um, I don't, no commentaries or any Bible study that I've ever done um, is this something that comes up as a reality in regards to why... Um, in Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, like num numerals are used. We're specifically in Luke, so we do have, um, you know, Luke writing it, but there's no reason that using some sort of numerical thing, especially for him, you know, to the, to the Greeks, 
um, or to a specific person would have been the reason he included that. That seems to be something you're reading into that. Now, I'm sure there's denominations. We did a whole review on somebody's TikTok when they were talking about divine numbers. I think it's a bunch of gobbledygook nonsense. Unless you can point me to some actual verifiable scholarly um, take on this, I'm just going to say that you're making this nonsense up. Like it's coming from some sort of whack teaching somewhere. If you disagree, as always, comment in the comment section below. But that seems to be the whole thing. 12 disciples or 12 tribes at the best connection you have. Um, but that's still sort of loose in regards to the fact that, I mean, um, the disciples aren't from the various tribes. There's 12 guys that then later on, when we get to, you know, into the, um, the epistles and then to revelation, um, have some sort of connection there. Anyway, that being said, um, let's get back into, uh, into what he's saying that the number of the dudes that rode with him is indicative that he is completely in control and he is Lord of all. So the first thing we're told in Luke 8, a ministry tour. One thing that I do want to say, he is correct on when you read Luke chapter 8. So you have uh, the parable of the sower, you have the all of the different parables, you have um, the... Uh, the parable of the lamp and the jar, the, the, basically the finding. You have Jesus calming the storm. You have Jesus healing the man with demons. Um, you have the story he's about to get to. So there is, in truth, I do want to give him more credit, credit where credit is due. There is this sense as you read through that Jesus is supre he's supremely powerful over all things. The weather, demons, sickness, Jesus has it covered. No matter what it is, he is supreme power over all of it. He is, he is God. So he, on that note, I, I mean, I know I, I'll, I'm going to call the 12 thing nonsense as far as what he's saying there, but you do get the sense and it's written in such a way to demonstrate Christ's power over all, all principalities. It begins and he has 12 people with him. Furthermore, it goes on to say, and a bunch of women were getting set free and supporting him financially. What? It was illegal for women to travel in a rabbi's caravan. Jesus is breaking rules already. Time does not permit for us to consider and investigate the state of this country or where we are as the church of Jesus Christ in relationship to women and the significant and imperative role they play in God's plan. We don't talk about it enough. And I don't... I'm not interested in you telling me what women can or can't do. You're wrong, I'm right, let's move on. Women are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They are called, anointed, appointed. They're not to be overlooked. They're not to be underestimated. Without women, the church wouldn't be here, baby. That's a fact. Tomorrow's Father's Day. And if any preacher... So he's going to go on this long thing. I'm going to let him go through it because he wants to rant about it. That's fine. We're not going to talk about women in ministry here. I do think that there is a lot to be said about the women's role and how overall in church, uh, depending on the times of history you're looking at, they have very much been undervalued in regards to... Um, their, their purpose and their place and their gift set and their giftedness. Uh, me and Judy would disagree on, on roles and um, what that looks like. I don't think that's a question at all. In fact, I, I would just, I would give you on this whole subject, 
two things to look at. Mike Winger has a really good, very in-depth, honest look at women uh, within scripture, specifically women in ministry. And then there's another book, Even Exile, in which Rebecca Merkel does a really good job of demonstrating the value and worth and purpose that God gives women in their work and in their task and the benefit of not only uh, the culture gets from that, but the kingdom gets from that. Um, And those two resources are incredibly helpful in a balanced, accurate, biblical review of what it looks like for women and the wonderful things that God has endowed and gifted them with uh, for the glory of the kingdom in real hands and feet work in the world today. Um, Me and Judah would disagree uh, on a lot of things. This is going to be one of them. Um, but it doesn't matter. He doesn't want to hear from me. He's, I, he, he's right. I'm wrong. Listen, you and I both know what dad wants is to sleep in. Now mother's day, that's some good attendance right there. Cause you know what mama wants to do. We're going to church. What dad wants to do. Don't get me started. Jesus elevates women. I said he elevates women. If you are a part of anything that does not elevate women, you're not like Jesus. We out here elevating women because that's what Jesus does. Talking about can women preach? Grow up. Read your Bible. I got no time. So one thing too that I think is very interesting to note, and one thing that I would I would point you to is that his wife Chelsea was on a panel talking about um, health, women's health care, and abortion rights. I'm not going to say anything of that. You 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 can go watch that, but um, the stance that she holds and that he seems to hold is very wishy washy in regards to where the Bible stands on. Um, life and uh, especially life in the womb. I don't think he's ever made maybe a statement on it. Maybe he has, but it's very interesting to see how sort of far into cultural feminism that they hold um, that is not, in fact, backed up by the Bible. Time for that is 2022. So that's not my message. All right. I'm getting it together. So then it says he starts his ministry tour and he says there's massive crowds. He gets massive crowds and then he starts setting people free from demons and stuff. He starts teaching parables. This is the parable of the sower, for instance. And the theme of the parables in Luke chapter 8 is not what you think. Don't get it twisted. It's it, the reoccurring theme within the parables are an open, soft heart. And here's an interesting thought when it comes to preaching. Do you know that God is more concerned with you hearing from your heart than your head? So listen, I applaud all of your notes. Uh-oh. I really do. But what I need, to, what needs to happen is you need to hear with your heart. And that's missing. So he, he does not give any Bible verse for this other than a very loose connection to the parables. So listen to your heart, not your head. Listen to your instinct, not your discernment. This is what I'm hearing. Now, if that's what he's saying or not, I don't know. But the, what he's saying is he's making a declaration for God 
without using any scripture, saying God is more concerned about you listening from your heart than your head. So he's more interested about you going on emotion than discernment and knowledge and seeing if what you're feeling and hearing is accurate according to his word. That's what that's what he's at least leaning very heavily toward without saying and providing no scriptural reference for saying God is more concerned about X than Y. That's magical. That's why when we say, God, speak to my heart, it goes past our understanding and God meets us right here. So you may not remember one word I say, but if you open your heart, God will touch your heart and that'll change everything. So you need to hear with your heart, hear with your heart. He says, open up your heart. You got to have a soft heart. You need to hear with your heart. And then he goes over across the, a, a body of water, and then there's a big storm. Do you remember this? It's all in Luke chapter 8. There's a big storm, and Jesus is sleeping. I love Jesus. He's sleeping in the storm. He's sending us a message even when he sleeps. Even his naps preach sermons, right? He's sleeping in the middle of a storm, which is to say the storm doesn't scare me. It doesn't need to scare you. The storm is not the storm. The storm is sin, and Jesus solved that. Storms come and storms go. Some of you preachers and pastors and leaders, you think the storm is the storm. The storm isn't the storm. Jesus sleeps through the storm that's got you up at night. It's not the storm. It's not the storm. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he has completely and totally made all of the provision to cover your sin, and you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and the storm isn't the storm. It's not the storm. So this is where he, before, when he was talking about all of chapter eight is to scream to you that Christ is overall, that Christ is God, which is true. The whole story of Christ calming the storm is that he's able to do so because, and even the disciples are like, there's something different about him than everyone else who can command the winds and the waves. It's, it's meant to be like this Jesus, this Jesus is different. Whoever you are, you're not, you're not like everybody else. It's not an analogy for you, the storm in your life or the sin in your life that Jesus overcomes. Cross, death, resurrection from the tomb. Those are evidences of that, not the storm. The story sometimes, I know this is very surprising to many of you. The story is just the story. I mean, when, when Luke writes this, and I always get the name wrong, it starts with a T, he's writing to this one individual, right, to, to tell him about the works of Christ. What did Jesus do? And so when this individual gets this and reads it, he's not going, oh, wow, I have a lot of storms in my life and Jesus can overcome them. No, he's looking at it going, there's something different about this Jesus. Who commands? He's got the same reaction, I'm sure. If you were to read this, you would as the disciples. Who can command the winds and the waves? No one. I've never seen anyone tell the wind to shut up. That's the whole point is to be like, there is something different about this Jesus. He has power like no one else. Who does this? No one but Jesus. Is, it, is, it is asinine to think that this story is an analogy that you can read into about my life or my storms or my troubles and Jesus overcomes them. It is the modern day equivalent of the David and Goliath narrative. It is nonsensical. When we're reading it for what it was written for to show the works of Christ. Now, are there some underlying things there that you can kind of like, oh, well, yeah, that's not the point and the purpose though, guys. 
I don't know how any other plainer way to say it. Can Jesus, does he have the power to overcome the, the, the issues in your life? A hundred percent. There's no need to read that on top of that. None. Anyway, let's keep going. It's not the storm. It's over. They get to the other side and there's a dude with a legion of demons. How many is a legion? A lot. Jesus cast out the demon. Remember, this whole passage is to show you that Jesus is over everything. Jesus is over everything. He's in control. We use passages of scripture like this to teach people how to cast out legions of demons. I don't know if that's the point. Now, be careful because I might even take it a step further to say, yes, I do believe in physical healing and I do believe that God works miracles, but I'm not even sure that that is the main message of Luke chapter 8. It's that Jesus is over everything. So then it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 40, it says, and so... Um so he's going to get into that. But I want to just reconnect that there's like this ping pong back and forth. He's right that the whole thing is about Jesus being overall. That's the whole point. Is that he's overall. So no, you shouldn't use the, the, the story of uh, the, the man getting demons cast out as some way to teach people how to exercise demons. That's ridiculous. Just as ridiculous as saying that you're on a boat in your life storm and Jesus can overcome your life storm. Equally as ridiculous. I don't see why he doesn't connect the two. But the whole point is to show that Jesus is powerful. The story we're about to get into with Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood by her touching the fringe of his garment the, is to again demonstrate the power of Jesus. That She doesn't even have to touch him. He doesn't even have to tell her it is by faith that she even goes to approach him like he is i mean when you read these stories and we'll read it here in a minute but it is that he is god he has the power that no one else has we'll, we'll get to that in a bit though let's keep going a man named jarius or Jairus, depending on, I love America, depending on which circle or denomination you're from is how you pronounce different biblical names. It's fascinating. I'm not going to get into it because it doesn't matter and it's a nuance that bothers me and not you. Move on. Carmen's like, keep it moving, Pastor. I'm 15. I don't care how to pronounce Melchizedek. I hear you. Jairus has a daughter. Guess how old she is? Well, she's dead. She's 12 and she's dead. And soon in our story, you're going to discover that Jesus has power over death. He has divine power, divine government over death. But somebody interrupts the regularly scheduled program. And I think... She is me. When I read about her, I'm like, girl, I don't know your name, but it might as well be Judah. <laughs> I know a girl named Judah, by the way. Cool as a fan. Most of us are. So, she doesn't have a name, but she's not on the tour schedule. Am I the only one that sometimes I don't feel like I'm on the tour schedule? Okay, so he's about to eisegete this to no end. So before we get to it, let's let's cover this real quick. So he's talking about how she's not on the tour schedule, 
but either was Jerry's daughter, right? So he's saying that this woman with the issue of blood is um, not on the schedule for Jesus to heal, right? She's not, you know, he's going and doing it to her, but neither was the demon possessed man, right? Neither was Jerry's daughter, right? So it says in verse 40, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Why? Because they've heard about all of the things that he's done. You don't cast demons out of somebody without it catching some news. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. And he had uh, and he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. So again, Jairus not on the schedule either. So don't let this terminology that he uses that he's going to press really hard in on, right. To make a main point that this lady wasn't on the schedule. I don't feel like I'm on God's schedule either. You know, God takes time for the people that aren't on the schedule. He's going to say all of these things. True. She wasn't, but either was the demon possessed man. Either was Jarius. Jarius comes and falls before Jesus. Jesus wasn't coming to this place to heal Jairus's daughter as far as like intentionally like oh we have to go here to do this thing right he's not going like he does to Lazarus's tomb on purpose to see Lazarus right so don't let pastors can say things in a certain way to make you think there's things in the scripture that aren't necessarily there again i'm not saying Judah's doing that on purpose you you do whatever you want with how why he's doing this i'm just saying that that's what's happening we'll we'll at the end of this sermon we'll get to my second like my concern about Judah as a person as far as a pastor uh but right now we're dealing with the concern with the scripture he's using and the scripture he's using um He's already manipulating in a way that is making it sound like, well, she's not on the schedule. Everybody else was. And I feel like her. I feel like I'm not on God's schedule sometimes. So let's keep going. Man, it'd be sure nice to be on God's tour schedule. I don't even think God has put me in his daytime. I'm at best an interruption to his program. See, Jesus had no plans for the woman with a 12-year-old blood flow. He was on his way to minister to a 12-year-old dead girl. That's where he was going. Now, I don't know how Jesus walks, but let's pretend. Like, Jesus can't be like, my bad, my bad. You know what I mean? Like, that can't be Jesus. That's weird. But I imagine Jesus, like, why do I just imagine him just like, Jesus probably did what Pastor Rich always does. You know, I actually love it. You know, I do. But can you, do you, I, this is fun for me. I'm like, how did Jesus walk? Let's see, from Hawaii, you know, but... And this is where I think us preachers got it wrong. We preach Luke 8 like it's about somebody else. It's about Jesus. The Bible says she's walking with Jairus. He is. And the woman who's had a 12-year blood flow. Now, according to Jewish law, 
she can't be in public. She's quite literally on the outer edge of the community. She's in the periphery. She lives on the fringe. She lives on the outside looking in. Her dad isn't a preacher. She doesn't have a holy heritage. She barely knows the first, what the first book of the Bible is called. She's not well-versed. She's not supposed to be there. You know what's wild? Some of you got invited tonight, and you're like, who is this guy in the red suit with a snowcap on, bro? You brought me out to listen to this joker with a fake foam rock on stage, and you feel like you're on the outside looking in. But I got good news for you. You might be incorporated into the story tonight. She says, she... So one of the things that happens, and I do want to correct myself earlier on, if you did comment in the comment section about 12, there is some Bible uh, commentary about the number 12. I'd say it's very little, but it is there all included in the link below. Um, the, the only thing that it does connect to that he's already said is 12 is considered the number of completion that symbolizes God's power and authority, which technically goes along with what he said. So I'll take the L there, assuming that's true. That's a very cursory study that's very quick, but regardless, it is there with this words acknowledging. Secondly, the more concerning thing is that he's already said that he's reading people into the, into the story, um, Based upon some factors here, uh, all factors you feel like you, you're outside, like you don't know about who God is. You don't know the first book of the Bible. Your parents aren't Christians. He said your parents aren't pastors, that sort of thing. Um, but he, he's working on this idea of, hey, if you, are on, if you feel like you're on the outside, let me show you how you're in this story. Now, there is a right way to do this, right, in regards of um, saying like, you know, um, I guess what he said there isn't a bad way to go about it in regards to you feel like you're outside of the faith because you don't do this or have this. That's where I'd say you should stop. As soon as you read people into the story, you're, I think, being unfaithful what the text actually is doing. Something that he knows the text is doing. He knows the text is showing the power of Christ over all things. In this case, sickness, right? He's showing Christ's power over sickness. So there is a way to say, hey, if you feel on the outside, there's a lot of stories that demonstrate that God cares about those that in the situation that Jesus is dealing with, with the religious structure of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, God cares about the people that are outside that system, that that system uh, looks down on, doesn't let in. Like there's ways to address that in a way that's helpful. And you could use this story to do it. I would very much caution you, if you're a speaker or a pastor, to not say, let me show you and put you in this story, rather than saying, here's this beautiful narrative of what Jesus did do, and this demonstrates to us that he does care about you. There's no need to make you the woman touching the fringe of Jesus' garment. Because when you do that, you then therefore read a lot of extra stuff in that that says, if you only touch Jesus' hem of his garment, then you, right? None of that is necessary. 
the point of the passage, as Judah has already pa- pointed out, is that is the power of Christ, is the compelling understanding that he is different. He is God. There's no need to read you into the story. It's, there's a need to unpack it and demonstrate and to show the goodness of God. We see this in the epistles, in the letters that James writes, that Jude writes, right? The, the, the compelling power of who Christ is to change you. There's no need, for example, when James writes, right? He doesn't read them into the story of Enoch to make them feel like they're involved. He just tells them. And he tells them to demonstrate the power of God over darkness and his enemies, that God is prevailing over all things. False teaching, God is over that. He will put an end to that. We don't see Peter, when he writes his letters, say, hey, there was once a time I was on the boat with Jesus. And there's sometimes that you feel like you're going to be on a boat with Jesus. Like he, They don't do that. That's not the point. Their, their overall purpose in all of the writings and all of the teachings is to demonstrate that Christ is over all. And you can do that by telling the story and demonstrating that without reading yourself into it. But I am taking up more time than I have. Let's keep going. Anybody ever heard a message from this, this chapter? Anybody? How many ever heard Luke chapter 8? You Okay, church people. Wow. I got to get in in LA. There'd be like four people. I think so. You know, I love Florida. Yeah. All right. Now, if you're like me and you know preaching, this is right about when the preacher starts saying, we need to be like the woman with the issue of blood. We need to push through all of the distractions and push through all of the things that so easily beset us and ensnare us and distract us and keep us from him. I'm looking for people who can push through the crowd. Ah, that's good preaching. But that's not the point of the passage at all. I can prove it to you. Oh, you think she was walking like this. Right? And that's how we preach it. We preach like we need the tenacity and the veracity of the woman who sought Jesus out. We need a generation who knows how to see God. And we do. That's not the message. You know what she was doing? She was sneaking. She was sneaking. Because later we'll find out The Bible says she finally discovered she couldn't hide anymore. Oh, so I'm the only person that sometimes feels like hiding from Jesus. Okay, so there's a couple of things he's going to get into. Two things that I want to mention. The first is that there is no indication of how she walked. This is all trivial. When he says um, she figured she couldn't hide anymore, this is after Jesus perceives the power has left him. And in verse 47, it says, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. So there's this idea that she understands that Jesus knows something happened. And if he knows something happened, and again, the whole point of this story is to demonstrate the power of of Christ, Jesus knowing that even that somebody touched him, 
she comes forward because she realizes that she's not going to be able to get away with it. It is not that she was sneaking up, trying to hide. She All she wanted to do was touch. She just knew she had heard of this Jesus, right? We read it at the beginning of eight. They met him. Why? Because, or at the beginning of this section of verses, they met him. Why? Because they had heard of all the things he had done. And I, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that she had also heard that, which is why she was there. And she figured, give it a shot. We're going to give it a shot. Again, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story that he knows that she touched him. Jesus is powerful, full of, full of the power of God because he is God. And he knows when even the power leaves him. And in this story, it is a demonstration of that. That even by touching his clothes, she was able to be healed. Anyway, let's keep going. He's saying that he feels like sometimes he needs to hide from God. I think this, listen to this. But when you listen to this, keep in mind with what he said before. He feels like he's got to be good enough. He feels like he's, he wonders if he's peaked in his ability to preach well. And sometimes he even feels like he, he's got to hide from God. All of this is a misunderstanding I, I, I is what I'm hearing. If you were to come to me and tell me and say the same things that Judah is saying, I would tell you that it seems to me as if you have a misunderstanding about, about God's grace and work in your life, about where your identity is found in him. Because if you feel like you have to hide from him, you don't understand the grace he has for you. I don't want to know. I keep sinning. And the blood, the life keeps going out of my body. Sin just keeps stealing and eating away at my life. And I want to be a youth leader. And I want to be a minister. And I want to be a business owner. And I want to get married. But I, I am on the fringe. On the fringe. Are you like me? Do you hear preachers talk about what they got delivered from? And you're like, I'm still in that. Are you like me? Like, I hear preachers, and then God set me free from anger. And I'm like, oh, shoot. I'm still waiting on him setting me free on that one. I'm going to go ahead and sneak about that one now. <laughs> Don't find me on the golf course because I'm like a six-year-old. I got an anger problem that won't stop. Ask my friends. It's embarrassing for all of us. And I love preachers. 12 years ago, God set me free. And I'm like, okay. Pray for me. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell anyone. So we sneak. You act like this woman was all courageous and working through the crowd. She was sneaking. And I just never thought that God used sneaky people. So a few things, right? I mean, that we can pull out there. One, he's saying he knows the purpose of chapter eight, but then is starting to read things into chapter eight. Not only read things in about how she was sneaky, but reading things in about reading us into it and all of that. It seems to me, and this is Judah's almost stated phrase, is that there's things he struggles with that he doesn't tell anybody. Yeah, you're going to struggle with anger if you don't have people around you to walk with you within a community of individuals that are also believers, iron sharpening iron, confessing to one another and praying for one another. You're, you are going to have that. One of the primary ways that Jesus sanctifies, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us 
is within the community of faith. But the reading of the word and the prayers, uh, our prayers and the prayers of others around us and our, us meeting together and praying for one another and with one another and for one another and hearing the word read and that being edifying and convicting and just building up for us, like having a community of faith that you are open with, that you talk with, that know you. So that chasm that he talked about earlier about who you are on stage and who you are in person isn't there. It seems to me that Judas says, I have to hide from God sometimes. I feel like I have to hide from God sometimes. Because I'm not on his schedule. I don't feel like I'm ever on his schedule. And then I also have to hide from him because of the stuff I struggle with. That people don't know about. And he says he realizes that people have, are able to be set free from things such as anger, he says. But I haven't been able to be set free from that. And it's not even that God will set you free from certain things simply because you're in a community of faith. But there are things that he will grow you in sanctification in so you don't succumb to that temptation. That temptation may never go away. Like maybe you need to, like there's things, anger, that may never go away, but you are able to um, walk in in sanctification so you don't succumb to that anger. You feel it, you feel the draw of it, but you don't give in to it through prayer and fasting and the prayers of the saints around you and people knowing that that's something you struggle with. Just, I mean, I'm assuming Judah has, he mentions actually a little bit later that he has people around him specifically there to help him with this. But he sees, he says he feels like he needs to hide. I don't know. It's just, this is like where I'm just, I'm concerned for him because I'm glad he's being honest, but it seems like he's being honest in front of an auditorium of people without maybe having people that he's really honest with. Just tell us that God can use sneaky people. I didn't know that God used sneaky people. I thought God used stately sanctified people. You know, people on the program, people on the schedule, people with the pedigree, people with the information and the data and the metrics and the details and the jargon and the words. Bless God, praise God, give God a shout of praise. Like, don't, that's, that was being silly. But like, some of your friends are here, and we're like, praise God, hallelujah. And your friends are like, what are we doing? And it stinks because they're like, I came into a club, and I don't know why we're standing. Why are we standing for the guy in the red suit and snow cap? I don't know. Why is he talking about his friends for 25 minutes and crying uncontrollably? This man's not well. Okay, so that's the part that I was talking about at the very beginning, that they seem to have cut by the comments that talk about it. There's something that happened beforehand in which he was crying and whatever about his friends, and I have no clue what it means. They are correct, though. There's a part here that Judah doesn't seem well. The way he's talking about things, the way it seems like to me that he has a lot... Well. I'll tell you what, he actually gets to it. I'm not going to talk about it now. He gets to it here in a minute, and we'll talk about that in the portion in regards to my concern for Judah's mental health currently. And we tell him, eventually, if you get saved, sanctified, you can be a part of the club, and God will put you on his schedule. But until then, Hope for the best. 
And so we try to tell everybody who I relate to in the story is Jairus. Come on, Jesus. Can you imagine Jairus? I mean, there's only a few people that get Jesus to come to their house. Again, if you were to read the text, I don't want to keep interrupting because I know we don't have a lot of time. We're already over an hour into this sermon review. The way that Luke writes about Jairus approaching him, this is a man that is devastated. This is a man that is begging Jesus to come heal his daughter. Um, let's, let's read it real quick. I don't want to get it wrong. I, I, do, I think it's very important that we read this right, right? We already read it once, but now Jesus returned and the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And then a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, came and falling at Jesus' feet, implored him to come to his house. For he had a daughter that was about 12 years old and she was dying. Jude, Jairus is not strutting with his arm around Jesus to the house as Judas portraying. This is a desperate father that knows without the intervention of this Jesus that has cast out demons, that has healed people, that he has heard about. Like he knows that Jesus can do this. And this is the only hope that this man has. Do not portray this as Jude, as Jairus is this guy that's like, yeah, I got it all together. And the woman that the issue of blood is the sneaky one. And you always identified as the guy that's got it all together. And now I identify as a lady that's the sneaky one. It is a misrepresentation of what is happening. This is what it looks like when you read your issues onto the text. Judah clearly has an issue that uh, maybe just from growing up in church that he has this idea that he had to be perfect and be presented as perfect and know all the stuff and keep you entertained and make sure you were, you were engaged and make all the jokes. And, you know, you, you can only do that so long before you burn out. And I think part of celebrity pastor culture, which we can't get into again, because that's not what this whole video is about, puts pressure on someone such as Judah is unbearable on a person and that becomes your identity that becomes who you are if you don't have that you don't know who you are and it seems to me that he's struggling with a lot of anxiety he's struggling with maybe mild maybe mild depression from not being able to live up to this thing i don't want to like self-diagnose him but the words he's saying and sort of the way he's twisting the scripture he really wants to read himself into this where Jesus puts him on the schedule, where Jesus uh, pays attention to him, where he's healed and delivered from something. Like these are all the, he's directly connecting himself. He's not saying, do you ever feel like? It's, do you feel like I feel in this situation? These are the words he's using. So not only is it a misappropriation and twisting of scripture here, which is concerning by itself, but the way he's saying it, Whatever cry fest he had beforehand, and the one that we're going to see here in a minute, all of these are very concerning things. That had to be so cool. Right? Zacchaeus. Jairus. People are like, hey. Yeah, man, you've been good, man. Tour's been, tour's been wild, right? Heard the crowd's been good, man. Appreciate you a lot, bro. And they're just walking. And then there's... A woman, she's sneaking. She's sneaking. She's. This is the part I love that preachers do. They're like, we need a generation with faith. Can I ask you a question? Where did she get this faith? 
We act like she concocted it. Like she conjured it. We act like, I'm going to tell you where she got faith. From God. When did he give it to her? I don't know. How'd she get it? I don't know. But did she get it? She got it. Probably because she's just desperate. She's dying! So she sneaks up. And she thinks to herself, come on, you already know where this is going. Come on now. She thinks to herself, I just need to touch the fringe. I don't need the whole robe. I don't even need to touch the man. I just need to touch the edge of his clothes. <laughs> don't get me started. I preach a whole sermon about Jesus' clothes. We don't see him a lot, but we know he was wrapped in rags. We know they gambled for his robe because it was royal and it was complete and it was full because he gives us the robe of righteousness. And we know that it's his second coming in Revelation chapter one. He returns in radiance, which is interesting because if you think about the, 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 the clothes of Jesus, it's the progress of the believer in the church itself. We start with rags. He puts us in a robe of righteousness. And then in the end times, we're radiant with his glory and his goodness. That's not a sermon, but it is. My rags will become a robe, and my robe will turn into radiant light someday when I meet him. But anyways, that's not the sermon. So she creeps, and she's terrified. You hear me? Now, here's the weird thing. I don't know if you hear it. The piano has already started. They've come up, and the piano has started. Now, we're only we're about 20 minutes till the end of this video. Now, he is wrapping up the sermon. So the odd thing to me, like in my head, is that Judah knows different ways of preaching. He seems to be, unless this is all sort of part of the presentation, he seems to be struggling under, which we're still, we're going to see here in a minute, the weight of, am I good enough? Does Jesus care about me? But yet, still has, seemingly on cue, someone come up on stage and start playing a piano manipulatively. Not, I'm not saying the purpose, the stated purpose is manipulative, but let's all be real honest. It, this is how it's always used in church. Whenever we start hearing the music, we know it's the end of the sermon. We all know that music puts like this emotional thing inside or outside the church. I mean, the record industry, the music industry of culture knows this. This is why things are put together the way they are. So he knows all this, like he knows churchy stuff. He knows how to preach. He, he could put together a little sermon just like he did on, on a whim. And he seems to be being crushed under the weight of it, but yet he still is going along with the whole thing. Anyway, that's my observation. It has nothing to do with the text. Let's keep going because he's, he is going to, the text is going to be a problem. I mean, she's terrified. Nobody told me God could use scared people. I thought you had to not be scared. I grew up with that brand, No Fear, and Big Dog was the 90s. No fear. And we kind of let that get in church. No fear. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid every day. Every day. You take over your dad's church. You're just afraid. Now he's about, this is where he's about to get into it. I want you to seriously listen to this next thing, because I think this is very revealing about where Judah is at, like mentally, where he is at 
um, just the weight of everything we've talked about up to this point. Now, he's diverging from the scripture. I mean, we're barely on scripture at all. When we do use it, it's terrible. But the point is, we're not on scripture right now. He's talking about being scared. The woman was scared. He's scared every day. This is what he's saying. And I think he's being very, very blunt and very honest here. Um, and it's revealing quite a bit. I remember one member came and she goes, I really miss your dad. And I'm like, oh, you miss my dad? I miss my dad. I'm out of sermons. I'm out. I preached all the ones I got. Lady, bless you. Scared. You don't think I'm scared? You don't think I'm hurt? You don't think I'm wondering if I'm the next pastor going to be in the news? You don't think I don't think about that every day? Are you kidding me? You don't think I wonder every day if somebody's going to make up a story about me, whether or not it's true or not doesn't even matter anymore. Oh, you don't think I'm scared? Who has bamboozled you? Who has beguiled you? For you think the six feet of this stage sets me free from fear? You don't think I'm sneaky? You don't think I'm trying to hide stuff? Like, Jude, is this a confession? No. By the grace of God, I've done nothing to disqualify myself. By the way, if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead others. It's not complicated. But by the grace of God and our board of elders and our doctrine committee and the pastor, you are looking at a pastor who's got more committees and boards that he answers to. I'm tired. So here's the thing. That whole thing, I think, was incredibly revealing. I think it speaks more to celebrity pastor culture than anything else is that he is under the pressure of being this perfect person and it is exhausted him and it has wore him out and he is feeling it to where he says like, there's nothing he's hiding that disqualifies him, but he's got so many people around him always checking and double checking and triple checking that he's not doing stuff that he's is exhausted because it, like he said, it doesn't matter if it's true or not anymore. If somebody accuses you of something or somebody even writes an article, Julie Royce, then all of a sudden everyone questions your integrity. Now, sometimes those are true and they need to be exposed a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But what he's revealing here is that celebrity pastor culture isn't sustainable. It never was. It's not how the church is supposed to be. The irony of this is that he is a, he's playing a part in celebrity pastor culture by doing what he's doing here at, at the conference. So that's mind boggling. But what I want you to see here is like he, I, like if I was advising pastor friends of mine and they said these things, I would say, you need to take a sabbatical. You need to take a break. You need to get alone. You don't do speaking engagements for at least a year. The problem is though, we've built a celebrity pastor culture is that these guys can't take a year off or they, their entire income is based upon the fact that everybody knows them and they go preach everywhere. And they've, they've started to live at a standard that's way above what they should be living at, but that's because they get paid thousands and thousands of dollars to speak places. Like this isn't what you're seeing, I think, is a crack here in the system of, of uh, mega church pastors 
that is unsustainable and it has pressure on people. And what we've seen is Judah is just telling everyone that without telling everyone that. And I feel bad for him. I think we should honestly, I mean, you should put him in your prayers because he's clearly uh, under a lot of pressure, clearly stressed out, clearly tired. It's not good for anyone's mental health to do that. And he seems to have all of his identity in who he is now on stage, the persona that you see. And he's already told us numerous times that he struggles with stuff and he doesn't feel like he can tell anybody about it. Now, again, this has nothing to do with the scripture. He is clearly reading all of this that he has and is struggling with onto the text that he's trying to preach about. And then using that as a bridge to try to connect to other people in the audience that maybe feel the same way he does. Let's keep going. It's because I'm scared. I'm scared. And I wish that I could tell you today that most of my life following Jesus looks like this. I want it to. I want my boys to think it is. But a lot of days, man, especially recently, look more like this. Are you a pastor? Yeah, it's me. Is your name Judah? Yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. Hey, are you good with me? Me, I'm good. Yeah, okay. You got a sermon for us, Pastor? Uh, yeah. Um, a good sermon, Pastor. Thank you. Was that that was all right? Okay, all right, all right, kids. Let's go home. Okay, everybody. Okay. See, people are clapping. They don't understand what's happening here. He is telling. I mean, look. I've been around pastors long enough. I was uh, the whole account. This whole Instagram, YouTube thing that's happening came out of account of a very stressful situation of leaving a church. I'm not even going to say that I know anything comparable to the stress that Judah has in his position, but I can tell you that not only in my experience, but other pastors' experiences, there's a lot of pressure on you. And what he's demonstrating here is that he goes to speaking engagements, feel like he has to have uh, the perfect sermon. He, he's always wondering if it was as good as the last time. Do they still think I'm good? Do they still think I'm, I'm the Judah they know, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. And he's leaving going, okay, kids, okay, wife, let's go home. We're still good. We still got our income. We still, we, we're still all right. And he even referenced being recognized in public of being like, oh, I've got to be this guy now. Like, I don't think the audience realizes what is happening. I mean, maybe I'm being duped. Maybe this is all part of the a show he's putting on. But from what I can see, he's trying to tell this entire auditorium that this isn't working for him, that this isn't sustainable. This is what I'm seeing. I don't know. Tell me what you think. This is a cry for help as far as I'm concerned that he's giving right now. I don't even know how long ago this was. I didn't look at the date. But the point is that this, if I was his friend, I would say, bro, you need to take a break. You need to get some therapy. You need to talk to some people. You need to realize overall, your identity isn't in people knowing that you're Judah Smith. 
Your identity is found in Christ. Your identity, all of your hope, all of everything of who you are isn't in the fact that you're a pastor of this huge church that has influence over people. This, your, your identity isn't in your ability to give a sermon that's engaging and intriguing and people laugh and people like it and people clap and people want to talk to you and buy your books. Like, that's not your identity. Your identity as a believer is in Christ. And I don't think he, like he's struggling with that as far as I can tell. And the audience doesn't get it. They're clapping. As soon as he said, was that a good sermon? Their minds automatically went to, oh, he's, he's looking for affirmation. Let's clap. They don't understand what's happening. They don't get it. How, how is the church okay? People still giving? Anybody hit the news lately? Am I okay? Anybody tell any stories about me? Who? Wait, who? You didn't hear? Who was it? Ask yourselves. What happened? I don't know. I'm calling you now. See if he's all right. Well, you think I call? You think I call pastors with an arrogance or a self-sufficiency? That somehow that won't be me. Let's not pretend because he is really close or was really close with Carl Lentz. I mean, there's no way I think you can disconnect the monologue he's giving here outside of that situation with Lentz. And even though that was, I don't know, at this point, maybe that was um, a year, year and a half ago. Like, that's clearly very raw for Judah. That was his buddy. They hung out all the time. He Carl attended all these kind of conferences, spoke right alongside of him. I mean, don't for a minute think that that's not the sort of thing that he's connecting here, because I think it clearly is. Take heed, lest you yourself fall. I call, I call, I call, and my hand trembles as I hold the iPhone in my hand. And I say, God, I'm tired, and I'm scared, man. I wanted to be a big preacher someday. Now I feel like I'm not even, God, how I love Jesus. Don't get it twisted now. I love Jesus. But I don't know about what he called me to anymore sometimes. Oh, I love Jesus, but I've been sneaking up on him most of the time. Because walking with him like this sometimes, I'm like, oh, it's getting crazy out here. So I'm sneaking up and... And what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to preach sermons to you where you walk like this out of conference. But the truth is I'm trying to tell you that God will use you like this. See, what I'm concerned about is that this is a good moment to be able to tell people that you are going to find identity and worth in things that are not fulfilling. And they're going to crush you. They are going to be crushing to you. But in those moments, if you remember who you really are in Christ, that you've been saved, that you've been set free, that you're being sanctified, that you have Christ's righteousness on you, that he gave that to you when, you took your, when he took your sin, that you can walk in this boldness, not necessarily strutting out, but you, you can walk with the security that you know that you are his. 
that you're being changed by him, that you're being made new. And I would push you to a local church, 100%, that you need to be around people that can pray for you, that know you, that can walk alongside of you. This isn't about the position in which you approach Jesus as far as, like you walk out of conference strutting or you come up behind because you're all humble. Eight Chapter 8 is a demonstration that Christ is over all. And if you're a Christian, that's your, that's, your, that's your Lord. So you can approach him. He, he can take over every situation. He's over all situations. And you can have faith in that. You can have hope in that. But that, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's, he, he's given a, a very personalized message with everything he's going through. And he's not pointing to the sufficiency and peace found in Christ. And that's a concern to me. You okay? I, I think so. Are you going to make it? I hope so. Are you going to quit? I don't know. Are you? No. Okay. Yeah, me neither. I'm not going to quit. No, I, I love this. You, you love to preach. Yeah, yeah, I love to preach. Okay. All right. We're going to be all right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. And the Bible says... And the Bible says, what time is it again? The Bible says, she, she reached out and she, she, she touched, she touched just the fringe. The woman on the fringe just needed the fringe. And she, she touched, she touched, and she slipped away. She said, oh, he did it. She went away and wonderful Jesus, he stops. He said, who touched me? And listen, 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 listen. The guys say, what do you mean touched you? Everybody touched you. We preach sermons and we make people think he's hard to touch. See, again, he's adding things there that's not like he's putting things in there. That, that, that are true because there are times where people make it seem like Jesus is hard to get to, but he's adding that to what we see here in the scriptures. When did Jesus get hard to touch? When did Jesus get hard to access? When was Jesus only touched by the spiritual elite? When did Jesus need your theology to be straight to touch him? When did Jesus need your morals to be right to touch him? When did Jesus need you to know all 66 books of the Bible to touch him? He, he said, who touched me? So right now, he's, he's, he's making an emotional connection with, with the, the audience. And he's right in regards to there is, there is not... A, a status in which one has to reach to approach Jesus, right? I mean, we have this, I mean, Paul says this, you know, no, neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free, all have access to Christ's grace, right? This is the idea that it's not status or gender or nationality that gives you access to Christ. This is what, essentially what Jude is saying, but he's connecting it again to this idea that the woman on the fringe of society, which there's no, 
this isn't necessarily true that she was on the fringe of society. She did have a sickness. No one could cure it. She just had heard of Jesus coming up and she knew she didn't have to necessarily approach him. She just had to touch him and she does and she's healed. This again is the whole purpose of chapter eight, the power of Christ. There's a sermon that could be preached here about no matter what is happening, right? Christ has power over it. Demon possession, Christ has power over it. Sickness, Christ has power over it. Death, Christ has power over it, right? Storms, winds, waves, Christ has power over it. All of it to demonstrate that in whatever situation you're in, Christ has power over it. And you can take hope in the reality that he does have power. Uh, power over it. So whichever situation you're in, whether you're like Paul and being beaten and left for dead, or whether you're like Jude and you're approaching false teaching, like no matter what it is, you can have confidence and faith and boldness in the reality that Jesus has power over all things. And sometimes you will see um, things happen that are miraculous and you can point to that and say, Jesus has power. And other times you will be sanctified through situations in which in those situations, nothing may happen, but you can have hope that he is there, that he has power over the situation, even in the situation in which you don't see anything happening. But instead, Judah is, again, playing into sort of his emotional baggage, it seems like, about how he always felt like he had to be perfect to approach Christ. And then reading that into the story, there are ways to address that outside of the story. Um, but we're now reading into it. So there's a truth here. This is 100% true. Like this reaction is good that people understand that there isn't a qualifier that makes it to where you can approach Jesus. You don't have to act, speak, do certain things in order to be able to be saved. This is an important point that needs to be pointed out 100%. Wrong text, though, is all I'm saying. Wrong text. And somebody... Something inside of me is like, Jesus stopped because the sneaky woman touched him. He says this, he says, no, somebody touched me to be healed. She got it. And he, listen, he says, who touched me? Now, theologians agree that he could have accessed from the father the knowledge of who touched him. So he knew, but he wanted her to know. Now watch what happens. He says, who touched me? Who touched me? And he's not going to leave until he locates who touched me. Who touched me? And I'm almost done. Are you okay? I'm almost done. Pastor Rich, I'm almost done. He said, he said, um, hey, thank you, Pitbull. He said, uh, Pitbull just said, keep going. The Bible says she finally realized I can't hide. I predict a church will arise in the near future. Jesus will stand in her midst and he will call forth all those who thought themselves necessary to hide. Come out! Come out wherever you are. Are you broken? Are you weak? Are you weary? Are you addicted? Has it been more than a decade? Has it been your whole life? 
Did you come with a friend tonight thinking this arena is going to burn down? I'm not holy. You're amongst friends. My middle name is Nightmare. That's my middle name. He says, who touched me? Pam says she knew she couldn't hide anymore. She didn't know what his reaction would be. She said, um, it was me. I'm sorry. I know that you're busy. And I know you got a lot on your schedule. I'm so sorry. I wasn't in the program. I wasn't, you know, the one you were going to, but I just needed you, man. So, um, you know what's really cool, though? I touched your tassel. I touched the fringe. And I stopped bleeding. And I know it's against the rules. And I know it's against the law. And I know I shouldn't be here. And I don't belong here. And I'm not like everybody else. But I just, I needed you so bad, man. Jesus says, beloved daughter. My daughter. So I want to point out, right, for all of the other junk I've given him, and I think it's appropriate in regards to the, I, the, the handling of the text that he has done, I think this part right here is, for all intents and purposes, pretty good in regards of saying like, hey, there are people that I'm sure that are in that auditorium or have watched this afterwards that, are, that feel far from God, but they know they need him. They know they're not perfect. They recognize their sin. They're just not sure what to do about that. And this part of the message is really good for them in regards. They know they have, they know they have a need and they're hearing about this Jesus and they want, they want to be, they want to be healed or freed from this thing. And this part, like, again, though he is reading into the texture, I think there's a, there's a universal truth and principle that we see here of Jesus caring for those that know that they need him. That, that there are people that he's speaking to, that Judah's speaking to right here, that know that they need a change. They need something other than what they've been doing. And that Jesus is the answer for that. And they're just not sure what to do. Because as Judah has pointed out, there have been churches that they've likely attended and approached that were less than hospitable to them and said, you have to dress this way, speak this way, do this thing before you can come here. And that is 100% wrong. And he's speaking to those people now because he seems like he, he genuinely cares for them to know about who Jesus is. And he's about to get to the point where Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And it's this woman's faith that Jesus could do what she had heard he could do that healed her. And Judas does seem to be very adamant. And this is where, again, give him credit where credit is due, is that he really wants people to know that they can be set free, that, 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 there's, that, that there's this Jesus that can do this for them. Even though he's alluded to earlier on, like he still struggles with that himself, apparently. But he wants them to know that. So kudos where kudos is due. He's pointing people to Jesus here in regards to saying, like, if you're struggling with that, if you have that issue, I know my camera just went out. My camera's been having problems. We're just going to finish this as is. But he's telling them, hey, if this is an issue, there's a solution for you. So let's keep going. 
You know who you are to me. You're my baby girl. I'm so proud of you. Are you kidding me? You go with my peace, you hear me? I want everybody to know in the town square that I choose you and I'm proud of you. And the, you know, history, church history records, she built a statue there. Do you know that? She collected all of her, and in fact, one of the, one of the tyrannical leaders in the future, he destroyed her monument. She built a monument. Church history records this. It's not in the Bible, but there was a, there was a, um, a, a tyrannical leader who destroyed her monument, and he died by a lightning bolt to his head. Did you know that? He got shot by lightning and died. Don't mess with his daughter, man. <laughs> it's crazy. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? I didn't know that. I was like, oh, hey, God. You don't want nobody to mess with your kids on the fringe. I used to think you got to stand on the rock like this. These are the people God uses. On this rock, I will build my church. And we've told the next generation, they got to be like this. When in reality, most of us are like this. I just... Most of us meet Jesus like this. What is this? Hi. Jesus. Wow. You're stable. Come out. Come out wherever you are. You ready? You ready to be used by God? You got a little sneaky in you. You got a little fringe in you. You feel overlooked. You feel underestimated. You feel like nobody sees you feel like I'm not, I don't got it, I don't got it, I don't, whatever it is, I know I don't got it. I don't sing, I don't talk, I don't write, I don't paint, I don't write poems like Pastor Rich. I'm not poetic. I don't, you know what's amazing, Pastor Rich? We don't know her name. We don't know her story. Because she is me. And I am her. And I think she's the portrait of forgiveness. So what we have here is, again, I think he's really trying to work out um, his struggles with the weight of everything he's gone through with the reality that Christ is enough, that his identity is found in Christ. He also seems to be struggling secondarily along with that this idea that people have been told they have to be a certain way to approach Jesus, to be saved. In fact, I think his illustration of falling over the rock is, is pretty good in regards to the fact that most people, uh, God finds them. They don't, I mean, I guess, depending on the theology you're coming from, God always finds you. You never find him. But the idea that they are gifted the faith to believe in who he is. And... He does contrast arrogance of standing on the rock like you are this, you know, you're so awesome versus the understanding that like you're not and that you're just trying to get close to Jesus. I think there's a lot there that could be worked out well. And I think a, a lot of the comments on this video are 
talking about how much they love this message, how good this message was, how much it connects to them. And I think the reason that is, is because there's a lot of connectivity of people that don't know that their identity should be found in Jesus. They don't know that they should be in a community of people that actually know them, that they can help them walk through all of these issues to pray for them, to be there with them, to be the actual body that the gift of the church of what it actually is for them. Um, so there's a lot of good things that he says here in this sermon. They just don't connect to the text necessarily. And it's very conflicting because he is, he is telling them things that are very helpful in regards to you shouldn't, you shouldn't have a dual personality. If you're this way in front of people and this way in front of somebody else, you shouldn't approach Jesus in an arrogant manner. This is, I mean, you should approach him humbly. All of these things are good. Um, but it's so like everywhere, but there is a very, emotional pool here that people are going to connect with that they are connecting with um, that I'm not sure is fully fleshed out into how to healthily, how, how to approach it in a healthy manner. So yeah, you feel off. Well, how do you, how do you get part of a church that helps you understand that Christ is your identity? Like we don't address that, but anyway, we're going to finish it up because this is already a very long sermon review. So let's finish it up. Darius's daughter is a portrait of resurrection that God will forgive you, cover you, and he will resurrect you. Oh, I plead with you, friend. Fall on the rock. If I met anybody better, I'd tell you, you know. Oh, I love him. And I still admit, man, I'm 43. And he still gets me like this. God, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. Please let me go. There you are. Thank you. Now see, we does there, that's incredibly powerful and helpful. That is telling people to rely on Jesus. That's, that's, that's what it's doing. It's telling people, hey, fall on Jesus. Fall on, be... Have him as your foundation is what he's essentially saying. Again, I'm going to get flack, I'm sure, for this, this review. But the point is that he does say that. He does get it there. But he doesn't, he doesn't point people to the scriptures that demonstrate that, that will help them walk through that, that tells them that, hey, you need a church community. That, I mean, he gets there and he understands it. But there's a lot of other stuff here that's 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 problematic, um, that's confusing. That seems to be that Judah, I don't know, is is really having trouble with it. Um, and I'm 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 giving him credit that he's being super honest about it. I'm glad that he's being honest about it. Um, and I'm really glad that he does get to the point where he finally says, "Hey, fall on the rock." It's the best advice he's given this entire sermon. Fall on Jesus. He is a sure foundation. I'm done. Can you play the piano a little louder? So I'll stop just a little louder. For when I am weak, then I am strong and the power of Christ rests upon me. Hey, 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 you gotta be strong to be weak. 
I'm looking for weak people. I'm looking for sneaky people. I'm looking for broken people. I'm looking for addicted people. I'm looking for shattered people. I'm looking for people been through trauma. I'm looking for people been through trauma. I'm looking for people who've been hurt by their best friend. I'm looking for people who ain't hey, talked to their dad in six months. I'm looking for people from broken families and messy lives and broken years. I'm looking for people, your 20s was like hell. Your 30s, you barely made it, but now you're in your 40s. I'm looking for weak, broken vessels that will stumble on the rock. Come out wherever you are, for the king is here. And he won't shame you. He won't condemn you. He'll commend you. Carmen, you're his daughter, you know. You know that, Carmen? He's your dad. He's your father. And he's so proud of you. And I can tell this is the worst moment of your life. <laughs> and now there's a photographer coming over to take your photo. It's getting worse, Carmen. <sighs> You're his baby girl. And he's so proud of you. Pitbull. God's so proud of you, man. He's so proud of you, bro. You're doing good work, man. Where's Doe? Doe, can we? Okay, so he's going to end uh, my camera. If you're watching the video version, you know my camera's gone. So I'm just going to leave it on this little extra cam that I have to end this. Uh, there's three things we look at that I did not mention at the beginning um, that we always look at in sermon reviews. The one is if they read the scripture. The second is if they uh, they exegete the scripture using culture and context to bring an application. And the third is if they mention the gospel of Christ. Uh, the first, uh, he never really read the scripture. He referenced the scripture. Um, some of it was right. Some of it was wrong as far as how he recounted it to the audience. Um, he didn't really use a whole lot of context and culture in regards to, I would name, for example, how he said Jarius walked and versus how the woman approached him. That was just wrong. Um, so I'd say both of those were, were pretty big misses. Um, the third one, though, is the gospel was the gospel of Jesus uh, preached. And I know I'm going to get people that are going to like be like uh, problematic with my answer here, but I think him repeating about the falling on the rock. Jesus is a firm foundation. He's the best thing you could possibly know. Um, checks that box in regards to no, he didn't mention repent. He didn't mention sin. Um, he didn't mention any of that, but he pointed people to Jesus. And if they are in the categories that he was talking about, as far as like you're looking for something that is going to fix the issues that you clearly see in your life, if they look into Jesus and they pursue Jesus, I am... Um, I'm confident that God will be faithful and save them. Um, so no, definitely a miss on the first two. I'd give him a check on the last one though. So that being said, I think there's a lot going on here in this sermon that we just don't have time to unpack. I think, um, there's a lot of stuff that Judah is struggling under. I think there's a lot of stuff that he's just celebrity pastor culture that he's really dealing with, um, that I've talked about in there, but hopefully, um, this was sort of a dual review in regards to it wasn't just about the sermon. I think there's a lot underneath this sermon that he preached. Um, but 
on that being said, I'd love your feedback. There was a lot of comments on this video that were incredibly positive, thought it was the best sermon ever. And I think sometimes we let emotionalism and our connectivity to where we're at override what the scripture actually says, and we get things from it that aren't there. So I'd like your feedback. What do you think? How do you think celebrity pastor culture affects pastors like Judah? How do you think he did with the script, dealing with the scripture? Um, like, let me know if you disagree. I really want to know that. Uh, if you agree, you think maybe there's something I missed though. Let me know that as well. Uh, all of this is to grow, help us all kind of sharpen each other and to help us as believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life that include sermons, conferences, things like that. I really, uh, really do want your feedback. So guys, thank you for watching, following. If you enjoyed this, make sure you leave a like, make sure you leave a comment, make sure you subscribe. If you're not yet, there's a lot of you watching these that aren't subscribed. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, help the channel out, check out the links again in the description below. This whole sermon without my commentary is below. Thanks for sticking with me this long, nearly two hours. I'll talk to you next time.